Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Phil Sansom. And me, Katie Haler. Coming up, is reopening schools safe for pupils and teachers? What did the World Health Organization learn about the origins of the coronavirus pandemic when they went to Wuhan? And the carnage from the last time the Earth's magnetic poles reversed. Plus, what has happened to learning in the era of COVID? We'll hear from kids, parents and a psychologist. And given the problems, what's the government going to do about them? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. How much of a pandemic risk is reopening schools? With the UK making tentative plans to do so, two new studies have tried to answer this question. Both are preprints, so haven't yet been peer-reviewed. One is from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, the other is from the University of Warwick, and they reach almost opposite conclusions. I asked epidemiologist Deepti Gurdasani, who's independent of both studies, to take a look, starting with the one from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. What the study showed was that if schools were opened, we would very likely in most scenarios see the pandemic go from shrinking to start growing again and cases start growing exponentially like we've seen before. What assumptions have they made going into this model to make this prediction? The assumptions made are about how likely a child is to get infection when exposed compared to an adult. So that's what we refer to as susceptibility. And it assumes a susceptibility of between 30%, which means a child is much less likely than an adult to get infection when exposed compared to equal susceptibility, which is 100%. Irrespective of the assumptions made, what we find in almost all scenarios is that R would rise above 1%. The study also states that the results may depend on how dominant the new variant is in different parts of England. Right. So what are we to make of this? Is opening schools going to put us back in Outbreak City? I think it's very likely. I mean, it's not just evidence from this model. If we look at the real world evidence from England, so if we go back to November when we had a national lockdown and schools were open, areas where the new variant was dominant, which is, I guess, a comparable data to now because the variant is dominant across the UK, our rates in those places were higher than one despite a national lockdown. There's no reason to think that we, if we open schools in exactly the same way as they were open at that point in time with the new variant circulating, the results will be any different unless we make sure that we open them in a different way. This sort of contrasts to the other preprint that we have to look at, which is from Warwick. And they seem to say something different. What are they saying? 
they're looking at the rates of absenteeism when children are absent from school because of COVID-19. And it's looking at the rates over autumn and winter last year and trying to correlate that rate with when community transmission rises. So they're using the real figures of how many kids were absent around October, November. And they say, we conclude that there is not significant evidence to suggest that schools are playing a significant role in driving spread in the community. Where are they getting that from? They didn't find evidence that, for example, absenteeism rates rose before there were rises in infection in the community, which was interpreted as no strong evidence to suggest that schools were contributing to community transmission. What are we to make of this then, especially because the other preprint, they said, oh, if you open schools, we're going to get a bunch of new infections. Yes, I think the problem is that studies that look at absenteeism as a proxy for infection are problematic. Most children who develop infection are actually asymptomatic. They don't develop symptoms. And that means that they're very unlikely to become absent. We actually have very good studies now in the UK that don't suffer from these flaws. So they are based on random surveys of the population, which means that they include children who are asymptomatic as well as children who are symptomatic. What data is this? Where are we getting this? The Office for National Statistics household uh, survey data clearly show that children contribute to transmission. Primary school children were two times as likely as adults, and secondary school children were seven times more likely than adults to be the first person in a household infected. Once infected, both those groups were two times more likely to transmit to household members compared to adults. And that shows that children have played a very important role in transmission. Kids are really struggling. Is there any way to do this right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the impact of school closures on children is huge. Our current policy in schools is actually completely out of line with evidence on aerosol transmission. The CDC actually recommends using masks in secondary schools, but also encouraged in primary schools, particularly in high transmission areas. This is something that's being done in many parts of the world. In France and Spain, for example, all children six years and above wear masks in schools. The second area that hasn't received much attention in the UK is ventilation. While there have been guidelines to, for example, open windows and doors to improve ventilation settings, which definitely does help, there's not been any formal attention to this like there has been in other countries like Germany. We know, for example, that filtration devices and air purifiers can really reduce the amount of aerosol in a classroom. And monitoring devices like carbon dioxide monitors can help us assess whether we're reaching the level of ventilation that we really need to keep people safe in those environments. The other issue we have in schools, particularly in England, is the class sizes are actually one of the largest ones in Europe. In many schools, bubble sizes reach to the hundreds. But to reduce this, of course, we need more resources. So we need more staff, larger spaces. I'm really worried that them reopening without those safety measures in place will lead to a rise in R above one, which means we may actually have to go into another lockdown and close schools again, which I think would be devastating. Deepti Gurdasani. And stick around for the second half of the program, which is when we'll learn what this is doing to kids and adults, as well as ask how to close the gap between the least well-off and the most. If schools are a danger, then how about pubs and bars? Lots of people in locked down countries are desperately looking forward to sharing a pint again with friends and family. Clearly, when this becomes possible again, it will involve safety measures to reduce transmission. But will we even pay attention? 
Researchers from Scotland have published a study that could give us some of the answers. Martin Kashara spoke to Neve Fitzgerald about the research. We went in uh, 29 licensed premises and spent a couple of hours in each one observing the behaviour of customer and staff and how the new measures that were introduced by the government were operating in practice. Despite significant efforts from the operators of bars and pubs, there were risks of COVID-19 transmission that still existed in a substantial minority of premises. You actually went into these places to observe what was going on. Were Were the people there, they undercover or something like that? They were just uh, acting as normal customers. So we had pairs of people going into each premises. They were part of the same household and they had a drink, ordered some food if there was food available and spent a couple of hours there. And while they were there, they were just keeping their eyes open for you know, what was the layout of the premises and the distancing and how did customers and staff behave. They made notes on their mobile phones while they were in there and they wrote up their reports. And in particular, the stories of any incidents they saw where there was potential risk of transmission. What did you actually find out? Most premises had made substantial changes to the layout of their premises when they reopened. They also had a new signage in place in a lot of premises and there were hand sanitizing stations available. But we also found that in most premises, it was difficult to avoid having pinch points. So narrow areas at entrances or in corridors or in toilets where it was hard for customers to avoid passing close by other customers. There were more serious incidents in in quite a substantial minority of premises where customers were embracing or mixing with other tables. They were interacting with staff for prolonged periods. It'd be easy to paint this study as being a very small sample size and that we were looking for problems. But actually, that's really not the case. And it just, I think, shows what other people are saying is not really very surprising that when people are drinking, Alcohol makes them less likely to want to comply with guidance and also makes it more difficult for them to comply because it it affects their judgment and their hearing and so on. So what we would conclude is that even though there was clearly a desire on the part of operators to operate safely, that was uh, challenging to do as everybody tried to adjust to this new guidance and, and the new environment. I think the big question is, can pubs ever actually be safe? Should they even reopen? I mean, life is not safe. Pubs weren't safe. Shops weren't safe. Homes weren't safe before the pandemic. There was always a risk of catching a flu or a cold from someone. I don't think we can ever exist in a world where we're trying for everything to be 100% safe or we'd never do anything. So it's always going to be about what level of risk is acceptable. And clearly before the pandemic, you know, it was felt that it was acceptable for us to go to pubs and for there'd be a risk that you would catch a cold or catch the flu in a pub. And that was deemed to be an acceptable risk. So there will need to be a reassessment of what we're happy to live with as as risk and it's always going to be difficult because if you try to aim for low risk or no risk sometimes you end up with missing out on a lot of the things that people enjoy doing so it's a really difficult balance to strike but important not to talk about things being safe I think because that's an unrealistic bar to set. Neil Fitzgerald and that research is published in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. In other COVID news, the team dispatched by the WHO to China to investigate the origins of the coronavirus pandemic have published their results. They set out four possible scenarios to account for the emergence of COVID-19. A jump of a bat virus into humans. A jump of a bat virus into another animal and then into humans. An escape from a lab. And then the possibility that frozen food imported to China brought the virus with it. They think the second one, involving an intermediate animal, is most likely. 
Despite significant gaps in the investigation, the team did uncover some interesting findings. By the time China's government reported the outbreak to the WHO in January last year, there were already more than 13 different variants of the virus circulating in Wuhan. Columbia University infectious diseases epidemiologist Maureen Miller discussed the implications with Chris Smith. It was widespread in Wuhan in December, so likely started one month, two months earlier, even longer than that. And the spillover probably didn't happen necessarily in in Wuhan. It happened where the, the bats are circulating that have these viruses. Anywhere along that wildlife trade route, the spillover could have occurred. Not everyone is completely convinced by this report, though, are they? Senior people in the US have said that they just don't believe it. And part of the reason why they're saying that is if you look at the itinerary for the WHO's visit, they spent less than an hour in the market, which was at the centre of all of this at the start of it. They spent just a handful of hours in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. How can they realistically form opinions and gather enough data to make a a sound judgment with such a whistle-stop tour and with their visit being completely marshaled and controlled by Chinese authorities? I think a lot of information was not shared. And even the information that was shared, there was no connecting of the dots by the WHO scientists. 13 different strains were found in Wuhan in December. That suggests that there was so much transmission going on that they likely have done research and they have not shared those results. Yes, indeed, because I understand that the team requested blood samples. They also requested stored sewage samples from the Chinese authorities, which were backdated. And these sorts of samples are kept. I mean, I I helped to run a virology laboratory. We keep samples for up to 10 years in freezers, especially if we've got cases we're uncertain about. The Chinese authorities say that samples that have been requested have mysteriously disappeared and have refused to provide them. That doesn't sound like transparency to me. Absolutely not. And I agree with you. There are probably lots of samples around the country that could be helpful. There are several large AIDS hospitals that collect samples forever. So why are they not volunteering them then? They're not really helping their case, are they? They are not. What we can hold against China is everything they've done since after they discovered the virus. They were late in reporting. They did share the sequence. And there was a, you know, one or two studies published in February. And since then, radio silence. There's nothing. It's going to be hard enough to identify the origins of this pandemic. But they have just made it so much harder because they don't want it to be in China. Yet, the probability is enormous that it originated in China. But the Chinese could be proactive now, couldn't they? And yes. they could say, this oh. has happened. We, we can help you. Let's get together. Let's find out how this has happened. Because at the end of the day, the source is still out there. It could continue to seed viruses or variants of the virus back into the human race. And it could cause history to repeat itself all over again. And they do seem to be incredibly resistant to doing this. And it's not just this time. They did it 20 years ago with the original SARS, didn't they? So why are they doing this? Political reasons. Nobody wants to acknowledge that a virus that has infected over 100 million people that we know about, um, nobody wants to be responsible for that. And China in particular, as they have emerged as a political and economic powerhouse globally, 
this would undermine the idea that they're in charge of their own destiny. I think it's foolish because I think in the long run, people would understand that, you know, they were not responsible for the spillover, but they will hold it against China until they come clean and provide some data and information. I'm sure they have a lot more information than they're willing to share, which is how they can be so selective in choosing what they share. I mean, I'm frankly, I'm surprised that they got as much data as they did on this trip. I mean, the 13 variants that were in Wuhan in December, it doesn't take much to connect those dots. It had been circulating widely. So they've admitted publicly that it was circulating widely in Wuhan in December. And the data suggests that it started much earlier and it was much more widely circulating. Why has the lab escape theory been so emphatically and promptly dismissed, given that they did spend less than half a day in that facility? And and actually, it does remain a plausible possibility because the WHO team have kept it on their list. Yes, plausible, but again, extremely unlikely. They are a world-class lab, BSL-4, monitored closely and tightly to follow regulations It is extremely unlikely that it happened. Frankly, people are terrified of the viruses they work with. So they don't want to become infected or to be the cause of infection to others. Maureen Miller. Welcome to the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. And me, Lee Milner. Every month we look at the latest gaming news. This was built by DeepMind. Um, and it was called Alpha Zero. We review the biggest releases. Can I just say, he's a bold assassin. He's also a really smartly dressed one. His, his suit must come from Hugo Boss. And because there's a simulator for almost anything, we play some of the strangest ones available. You're sort of uh, playing as a very um, destructive puppy, shall we say. But then again, if you've ever had a dog. The Naked Gaming Podcast from The Naked Scientists. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, the worldwide chaos that happened the last time Earth's magnetic field flipped. And we're talking to the head of the government's Education Select Committee about what's going on with school children. But first... Let's go somewhere frosty, to Antarctica in fact, where researchers have made the rather surprising and accidental discovery of life in a place we thought it couldn't exist. Scientists from the British Antarctic Survey have reported seeing animals like sponges quite happily chilling on a boulder on the sea floor under a massive sheet of ice. To explain how they were found and what it means, Hugh Griffiths from the British Antarctic Survey joins us now. Hugh, how did you and your colleagues actually make this discovery? This was a total accident. The researchers who discovered this weren't even biologists, they were geologists, and they were drilling through this huge floating ice shelf to try and get at some mud from underneath the sort of 900 metres thick of ice and then 500 metres of seawater, and they wanted to get the mud that would be able to tell them the history of the ice shelf. And unfortunately, after doing all that work, they hit a rock instead of mud at the bottom. And luckily for us, they'd attached a video camera and they were able to spot that there was some strange life growing on it. So they brought it back to Cambridge, the video that is, and showed us. 
Blimey. What are these creatures? What what can you glean from the footage? What are we talking about? We're looking at animals that are attached to the rock. There's at least four types of them from their body shapes. And two of them we definitely think are sponges. One is kind of like a wine glass shaped with a very long stem. And the others look like classic sponges, almost vase shaped, attached directly to the rock. Beyond that, there's another couple of types of animals. One's almost like a moss type appearance to it. And we only see that when the camera actually bashes into the rock. Is it quite surprising to find a rock with life in it on the seafloor? It wouldn't be surprising to find a rock because that can drop off the bottom of the ice shelf because this ice used to be on land that has been pushed off. This rock was 260 kilometres back from any daylight. So any animals that we normally find underneath an ice shelf are ones that can run around and go to where the food is, because obviously the further you are from daylight in the ocean, the less food you're going to get. We expected to lose filter feeding animals like these a lot further out towards the daylight. How are they actually surviving on this rock under this ice? We think they're getting food with some currents that circulate under the ice shelf from the open water. But unfortunately for them, the food has to go the long way because they're currently on the outflow of the current system, not the inflow. So it means the food that comes in is coming from almost 600 to 1,000 kilometres away. So it's basically like being at the end of the line on a night bus or something where everyone else has got off. The food is down to the kind of dregs by the time it gets to these sponges. Oh no, poor sponges. (laughs) You mentioned that, you know, you took the, the footage back to Cambridge, but do you think you could actually get one up to the surface to look at it more closely? Is that practical? It's not with our current technology that we have. So we're talking about looking for life on kind of frozen moons and things around the universe. Those kind of technologies are probably what we're going to have to employ here because we've got two options. We send a device from 260 kilometers away on its own under the ice and hope that it manages to do a job without any human interference or we put something down one of these boreholes but these boreholes are only about a foot across and most of our proper underwater robotics are much bigger than that and if we try smaller ones in the Antarctic they tend to freeze up and break within a few minutes because the water's minus two degrees so it's about miniaturizing our tech and making it more ruggedized so that we can put things down that will collect a tissue sample without destroying the whole thing because we don't know how special this environment is. We can't destroy it by trying to pull the whole rock up, for example. Do you have any idea if this is a one-off or if you stumbled upon something that might be a bit more prevalent? We're talking about an area that covers one third of the Antarctic continental shelf, which is about 1.6 million square kilometres. So that's bigger than a country like South Africa. So if we found one by accident then I'm guessing there are a lot more boulders under there and there's probably a lot more life attached to those boulders. But what sort of life that is, given we didn't expect to find these, that it could be anything, which is amazing, but also shows us there's a huge habitat that we really know nothing about. I mean, this sounds like a pretty extreme environment to me. Do you think these sorts of life forms would be relatively unique? Well, when we work in Antarctica anyway, if we work in sort of normal depths, we get about 10 to 20 percent of what we find is new to science. And if we go into the deep sea, it goes up to about 80 or 90 percent of what we find is new to science. So if we go into an even more extreme habitat than the deep sea, which is what this habitat is, then the likelihood is you have to be pretty specially adapted to survive on this kind of extremely low calorie diet. 
And given that two ice shelves have collapsed in my lifetime, that also makes them incredibly vulnerable to things like climate change, because we may lose the entire habitat before we've even found out what lives there. Hugh Griffiths from the British Antarctic Survey. Thanks very much. I feel kind of bad for those sponges down there living at the end of their night bus route. I'd hate to live at the end of the night bus route. It doesn't sound like the most fun. No, not very nice. Well, talking of extremes... Recently, Australian scientists have dug up evidence connecting multiple massive shakeups to the prehistoric world. The extinction of the Neanderthals, the appearance of cave art, massive swings in global temperature and climate change, or to a weakening of the planet's magnetic field nearly 42,000 years ago. Adam Murphy reports. Earth has a magnetic field, and it does more than just point your compass one way or the other. It keeps the planet safe from the sun. Without it, particles beaming in from the sun would just strip off the ozone and leave the planet vulnerable to massive doses of UV radiation. But it's not static. It changes, it weakens, and occasionally it flips altogether. And one such weakening happened about 42,000 years ago. And when it happened, a lot of other big things were happening as well. Massive growth of the ice sheets over North America, shifting tropical rain belts, uh, shifting winds over the Southern Ocean, the extinction of megafauna in Australia and more arid conditions, the demise of the Neanderthals, all happening effectively at the same time and precisely coincident just when the poles were switching. That's Chris Turney from the University of New South Wales, who's been studying this changing in the magnetic field, which is called the Le Champs event. One issue when you're looking back that far, though, is pinning down exactly when something happened. Did the magnetic field change before or after these other things? And this new research has been pinning a much more accurate date using New Zealand's plant life. There are these beautiful big trees, several metres across, they can live up to two millennia, they're called kauri, but they've been there for millions of years. And uh, effectively, these trees have died and fallen into peat bogs and wetlands, and then being beautifully preserved, as a result of which these trees provide a year-by-year record of the climate through the patterns of the growth rings, but they also photosynthesize the carbon from the atmosphere and preserve that and lay that down as wood. And that gives us a measure of the radioactive levels of carbon formed in the upper atmosphere. And during the Le Champ, during the switch from north to south and south to north over several hundred years, the magnetic field effectively collapsed almost to nothing less than 6% of what it is today. And the practical upshot of which was that the shield protecting the Earth from all these high-energy cosmic rays formed from supernova basically just was flung wide open. And as a result, what you see in the trees year by year is this huge spike in radioactive carbon, which is laid down in the trees. You find this big spike. So it's really distinctive. Because this happened 42,000 years ago, and with a love for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the team have named all this, the magnetic field changes in the events that followed, the Adams event, after author Douglas Adams. But what would it have been like to live through? Aurora through the skies, lightning bolts, people were hiding out in caves. Uh, In fact, we see an explosion of rock art at that time, which implies people were actually hiding away because there had been increased UV and terrible climate changes. I mean, it must have seemed like the end of days. It must have been an extraordinary time to live for. And, and it would have gone on for decades. During this Lachamp period, the sun's activity dropped a lot as well. And it's almost like the perfect storm. You've got a weaker magnetic field. Everything's like the worst case scenario possible. And hopefully history 
isn't about to repeat itself anytime soon. That was Chris Turney talking about the research he's just published in the journal Science. And in booze news, researchers at New York University in Princeton have revealed the secret of an Egyptian archaeological site from around 3000 BC. The strange collection of buildings were discovered more than a century ago near the city of Abydos, and it's only now that we know what these structures were used for. The answer is to brew beer in what looks to be the largest industrial brewery in ancient history, as Eva Higginbotham heard from project co-director Matthew Adams. The overall facility covers an area of around 90 meters by about 40 or 50 meters, and it consists of eight separate partly buried buildings that are filled with these large pottery vats. Each one of these was used for cooking the mash, that is, the grain, malt, and water that is then fermented after cooking to make the beer. Each one of these individual buildings could cook close to 3,000 liters of beer per batch, and you multiply that by eight, and you have close to 24,000 liters of beer that could be produced at a single time. That is an unbelievably large amount of beer, even as a British person speaking here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A way to think about it might be, it's enough beer to give every person in a 40,000 seat football stadium a pint. Was beer particularly important to the ancient Egyptians? What relevance did beer have to them? Ancient Egyptians make very clear that the most important foodstuffs to them were bread and beer. But in uh, religious and ritual contexts, both of these things had added significance as offerings to, for example, sustain a dead relative in the next world. How do you know that these vats were used for brewing beer and not for making something else? We're very fortunate in that our vats and similar vats from other sites that are somewhat earlier, they frequently contain organic residues from the mash that was cooked inside. When this residue is analyzed, it can be shown to contain whole and partly broken down grains. Usually it's emmer wheat. The starch particles that are released from cooking the grain are also preserved. They can be seen under scanning electron microscopes. And the process of cooking that can be detected through this kind of scientific analysis, this is very characteristic of beer making. It's really the same kind of process that beer makers today are using under much more controlled circumstances. Do you reckon it would have tasted the same as a beer nowadays? No, it, it wouldn't have tasted. <laughs> there would have been similarities, but one major difference is that the ancient Egyptians did not have hops, which is a characteristic flavoring that most modern beers use. That would have been absent. So it would have been perhaps on the sweeter side compared to the more bitter modern beers. Another difference is that filtration would not have been up to modern standards. So it would have been quite cloudy, probably, and also had a lot of bits of partly cooked, like bread dough or something. It might have had almost a kind of runny porridge consistency. It doesn't sound very appealing from a modern perspective, but it would have been, from an ancient perspective, a very hearty drink and really almost a kind of 
a meal into itself. If you had a jar, they were kind of a standard size beer jar that's uh, close to a liter, you would have had a full belly and, you know, probably also somewhat of a light head. Two important priorities, bread and beer. Clearly a nation after my own heart. Matthew Adams there. Now, instead of a mailbox section this week, we're letting you know about some of the other shows you can check out in the Naked Scientist catalogue. If you want to learn about the brain, I host Naked Neuroscience, and this month we're boring into boredom, which, as it turns out, is actually pretty fascinating. Who knew? For the space buffs out there, there's a new season of Naked Astronomy, hosted by Ben McAllister and Adam Murphy. Most recently, they've been asking if there's liquid water on Mars. Meanwhile, I present Naked Genetics, which is sort of about what makes us, us. And we are about to release an episode with a top scientist testing the new variants of the coronavirus against the Pfizer vaccine. I also recommend the enormously fun show Naked Gaming from husband and wife team Chris Barrow and Lee Milner. And each of these shows is on all podcast platforms, or you can find all of them and more on our site, nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. This week, we're learning about learning. There's a large attainment gap for pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds, a gap of around seven months. That's education researcher John Kay, who's found out how the pandemic is widening the gap in education between the UK's least well-off kids and its most. Meanwhile, record numbers of adults are getting made redundant as the government's line remains. Not every job can be saved. It's clear that this presents significant educational challenges. Plus, schooling from home is not exactly an ideal replacement for schooling from school in many instances. We're going to hear from the people living through this, decode some of the psychological consequences, and finally talk to government and higher education about what they're going to do about it. First, let's hear how homeschooling is going for a couple of kids, courtesy of Naked Scientist Martin Kashara. I have two wonderful sons. One is 11 and he's called Chay, and one is nine, and he's called Oak. Like many school-age learners, they've been learning at home in the lockdown. So I thought I would ask them what it was like. Here's Chay first, and then his brother, Oak. For some reason, school is way funner when you do it on computers, but I can't play with my friends at break time, so yeah. No, there are downs and ups. Same with Che, there's quite a lot of downs and ups. Like, at the beginning of all the lockdowns, I was like, oh, this will be cool. That means, oh, we don't have to do the long walk to school. But now I feel like, oh. Che loves to build things and knows everything about Transformers. You heard Oak too. He's the youngest and he's an absolute genius gamer. But being indoors just isn't enough for him. I really do miss my friends. At school, we always used to have big playtimes outside, and now we just don't have them outside. We just stay at home. Home is more funner, but when you're at school, you can actually go outside, and because you have to keep concentrating when the next lesson's going to start, you can't really have the time to go outside. 
For once, they agree on something. And that is that they miss their friends. Here's Oak again. I like being at school because I get to play with my friends. But home, I do get to have playtimes. I get to play with my own toys. I don't have to change into my school clothes as well. But also, I can't do anything with my friends anymore. The big question is, do they learn better at home or better at school? Here's Che again. In class, there are a lot of distractions and a lot of noise. But at home learning, I've actually learned a lot, lot more. Because of the chat, nobody can speak on it and they can only type on it. Yeah, and the house is silent. I think I I learn more at school because there's big representations on whiteboards and computers. So I, I would be like, oh, that looks easy. But now, Miss doesn't really do that much more representations. And then I'm like, I, I need help with it from my mum. I'm really proud of how my boys have been coping through the lockdown. It's such a big thing in their life for two people who are so young. I'm not worried though. I'm sure it's all going to be fine eventually. They've both done absolutely brilliantly. But I think when we get back to school, there's definitely going to be some catching up to do. Thank you so much to Che and Oak and to their dad, Martin Kishara. Now, to sift through some of the psychology of home learning is Cambridge University neuropsychologist Barbara Sahakian. Barbara, we heard Che talking there about how he reckons he's learned quite a lot at home. Can the home environment provide alternative opportunities for learning out of, as he put it, the noisy classroom? Well, they were both very impressive young men. So I I was really impressed by how articulate they were and and how organised they seemed to be. I think the thing is that there's two kinds of learning that children do. And one is the sort of what I call hot cognition or learning. And that's the more emotional and social learning. And then there's the cold cognition, which is non-emotional. It's more the learning of facts and that type of thing. And if you're organized and if you like a very quiet environment and if you're self-motivated, learning at home can be quite good. But it doesn't give you that hot social interaction that you need especially for younger children. So here we have children of 9 and 11, but some of the younger children, of course, might have had a whole year taken out of this crucial hot development, the social cognition development, which starts at year one and um, goes to about year five of their life. That's very important for a building block for the cold cognition, but it also allows you to negotiate and learn how to interact with other people. And indeed, Oak was saying that he much preferred being at school. He misses his friends. He doesn't get the same interaction. Well, I totally agree with that. I mean, play is very important because that's how you learn to negotiate, you know, whose turn it is. And rough and tumble play for boys and girls is very important, the sort of contact, touching and and rolling around and having fun. I also feel that Parents are supposed to interact with their children in a certain way. So to suddenly have to become their teacher is a rather different way of interacting with your child. And some people react to it fine and other people find it quite difficult to 
concentrate if they're getting that kind of homeschooling as opposed to just sitting at a computer and passively looking at a screen where your teacher is presenting material. And again, you need very good attention to be able to focus for long periods of time while just looking at a computer screen. I think we've all experienced that when we've had Zoom calls. They're better if they're shorter than longer because it's just hard to keep your attention when it's so two-dimensional and you haven't got that feedback that you would normally get from people smiling at you and talking and laughing and at your jokes and things like that. Absolutely. I find video conferencing really fatiguing. And it's it's really strange to be spending so much time looking at my own face. But anyway, <laughs> kids don't all think in the same way. Is there evidence to suggest which kids might be getting a particularly raw deal out of the changes that lockdown has brought about when it comes to education? The children that are getting a raw deal are probably the ones that have been left behind a bit because parents can't spend as much time with them if they do need some help. Because we heard from Oak that sometimes his mum has to help him with something. So if you haven't got that extra help, that's very difficult. But also, you know, if you're shy or if you have a neurodevelopmental delay, such as autism spectrum disorder or something like that, it could make it more difficult for you to interact with the screen and the information. If it's if you don't understand it, it might be hard to get your questions answered. Can you offer any psychological tips for kids, teachers, parents? Well, what I would say is that as soon as children are allowed to have rough and tumble play and to get together and do the things that they normally do, because they are very social animals and they want to communicate with each other and it's very good for their language learning, make sure you let them get out there and play with their friends and have an opportunity to. And even now, I guess you can play some good games over Zoom and some children respond to that quite well. And I would say exercise too. Exercise is very good for children. It's good for your brain. It induces neurogenesis in important areas like the hippocampus. It's good for your mood. So if children get a bit low because they're stuck in the house, getting out there and exercising is brilliant for that. As long as it's something the child enjoys doing, that's a very good thing to do too. Thank you so much. We'll leave it there. Cambridge University's Barbara Sahakian. We're halfway through a show exploring learning during lockdown. We've heard about the psychological setbacks associated with lockdown learning. Now let's ask what we can do about the situation and consider adult learners as well. We've got MP Robert Halfen here with us. He's chair of the UK government's Education Select Committee. Robert, welcome. This is a pretty serious situation, education-wise, for kids especially, isn't it? Yes, it has been uh, nothing short of a disaster for children and young people for the most part over the past year. I've described it as the four horsemen of the education apocalypse because we know there's been a huge loss of learning. Mental health problems amongst young people are on the rise. There are ever-increasing safeguarding hazards. And now we know from the respected Institute for Physical Studies that the average pupil could possibly lose around £40,000 of lost wages over their lifetime because of the effect of not being in school. So it is very serious. And that is why I've been campaigning to try and get all children back into school sooner rather than later. 
Is the government perhaps too concerned with the cold part of learning that we just heard Barbara talking about, in terms of looking at exam results and exams that have been missed? I actually agree completely with how important schools are, not just for academic learning, but socialisation, behavioural skills, teamwork, and other things. And schools nowadays are not just places of education; they're often a place where a child might get possibly the only good meal of the day. What、uh, we need to do is not just the proposed government's 1.3 billion catch-up program, which is focused around academic catch-up, but perhaps extending the school day to look at well-being, mental health, and sporting activities, inviting civil society into the schools to、uh, give the children extra support and sporting activities that they've been denied over the past year. We've been hearing from the Education Endowment Foundation, who have released a report talking about the attainment gap, which is the gap between the most and the least well-off kids. We actually spoke to head researcher John Kay. Here's what he had to say: There's a large attainment gap for pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds, a gap of around seven months, and this represents an increase on gaps prior to COVID. And not all of this was COVID, because there was already a six-month gap before. He says. So the measures that you're talking about are they going to help narrow that gap? We are entrenching a have and have nots as society in terms of our children's learning. So of course the extra tuition program set out by the prime minister and the education secretary will help. It means that. Tutor groups will be able to give not just online learning, but also help teachers and support staff at school to try and ensure that these children catch up. But I re- reiterate my key point: it isn't just academic catch up that they need. They need a huge amount of mental health support. I mean, just to give you one、uh, example, we know that since the first lockdown, eating disorders amongst the younger generation have gone up by four hundred percent. I mean that is a harrowing figure to even think about, and that is partly due to school closures and social isolation. So I'd like to see mental health professionals, not just in some schools, but in every school across the country. What is causing the disparities, and and what are the factors behind some of these harrowing statistics that you're sharing? Well, in terms of academic attainment of the disparities, that is partly caused by the digital divide. We know that for a long time, hundreds of thousands of children didn't have access, and many still don't, to proper computers or tablets or even a proper internet connection at home. We also know that whilst teachers and support staff have been doing everything possible to keep children learning, and we should pay tribute to them for that. That there has been wide、uh, differences, and in many cases, children have had very varied experiences of remote learning. And in terms of the mental health, we know that、um, because of children not being able to go outside, exercise, play, go to school, it has affected young people. In fact, it hasn't just affected young people. There's increasing reports of mental health problems amongst. Everyone, but of course, for younger children, it's it's much harder to deal with. Robert, please stick around. But I want to bring in now Mary Mahoney, who is head of lifelong learning at the University of Wolverhampton. They run regional learning centres. They work closely with the city itself to try and help people in one of the most deprived areas in the country get education later in life. Mary, welcome. 
Thank you very much. I just want to introduce you by playing another clip from EEF researcher John Kay from his report. One of the things that's really worrying is the way that gaps increase as people go through our education system. So when we see a big gap in year two, as we have with this study, often that will increase as people go through uh, the rest of their education. It seems to me that you're dealing with the consequences of that gap increasing into adulthood. What is the scale of the problem? What are you trying to tackle in terms of getting adults into education where otherwise they couldn't? I think it's a really complex problem. And I think the pandemic has just simply exacerbated a problem which was there already. And one of the things we've got hung up on is qualifications. So if as an individual you failed at school and your experience of school wasn't a great one, then you are less likely to want to engage in learning of any form as you go through the lifespan. You will have diminished confidence in your own ability to learn and then you won't necessarily pass on to your own children a joy or confidence around the learning experience. So it's a multifaceted problem and it stems from the fact that we're concentrating more on education and less on learning. So it's very hard therefore to engage adults but adults are the linchpin at the moment. They're the parents who are currently at home homeschooling their children and as Robert said many many of them. In Wolverhampton it was predicted that 35 5,000 people had no access and didn't go online in the first three months of the pandemic and about 59,000 people didn't have any of the core basic digital skills. Not only have they got no confidence, they've got no connectivity and they've got no devices. So whilst we might fix the problems with devices and connectivity, we've got a population who isn't confident. Mary, what's this distinction you're drawing? What's learning as opposed to education? Is it the digital skills that you're talking about or is it more? No, I'm talking about everything. Our ability in life to access information, make sense of that and we modify our behaviour. So learning right from that basic information stage then moves into leisure and gives us meaning. It gives us confidence. It teaches us problem solving skills and our ability to be less reliant on the state. And as Robert's just said, it's massive massive, massive role also in our ability to reduce isolation and be creative through being able to knit, cook banana loaf or whatever people are doing, but to, but to get a sense of purpose and structure in our lives. And what's and, your and version of that, Mary? End. Because you're a university. What, what does that look like for you? Are you just making websites well, available? In a, no, in a, in a population as disadvantaged as Wolverhampton, where you've got 17 out of 20 of the wards showing massive issues around access to services and benefits and capability around digital and confidence and devices, etc. And you've got the third highest youth unemployment rate in September last year in a situation that's just going to get worse, then we have to go to the root of the problem, I think, and that is to understand what blocks people from thinking they can't learn. And you, and so for Wolverhampton, what we do is we work not just to respond, but we work together to move beyond the initial problems that COVID has exacerbated to start to address things like the fourth industrial revolution, where we're going to need new skills, new competencies, And we also make learning fun. We take learning to the community. We take learning to theatres where parents and children can participate. We have children's university where children get credits for learning. And we have learning centres in the community where people can come, drop in, find out what they need and and get the support they need. And we run learning festivals. A whole raft of stuff, Mary. I I better throw this to Robert because I'd like to hear his take. Robert, you're not in 
you're not a cabinet minister, you don't have a portfolio. So you sort of have the opportunity to stand a little bit outside and look at them and, and criticize maybe what's going on. Are they doing the kind of things Mary thinks are so important? Well, I think we need to do a lot more. We've got nine million adults without proper numeracy or literacy skills. And 53% of those who've left school age 16 have not taken part in any uh, learning since. And what I'd like to see is a lot more investment in lifelong learning. I'd like to give every adult a lifelong learning account so that they would have a credit to choose adult education. We need to re-establish adult community learning centres in almost every town. And I'd also like to give skills tax credits to businesses who trained their workers because we are falling behind many other OECD countries in terms of our adult learning. And it's just been mentioned about the fourth industrial revolution. The world is going to change. 28% of jobs currently done by young younger people may be lost by 2030 because of artificial intelligence. So there's going to be need, need to be retraining, reskilling all the time in order to ensure that people have the opportunities and can adjust to the changes that the fourth industrial revolution will bring. Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd like to thank both Robert and Mary Mahoney. And finally, we've just got time for question of the week. And this week, Adam Murphy's been rather hungry for an answer to James's question. What were the health impacts of the vastly different diets and lifestyles of aristocrats and peasants? How much taller would an Anglo-Saxon thane have been than his average subject? Ignoring education, would wealthy Roman patricians be much smarter than plebeians based solely on improved nutrition? This is a question you can really get your teeth into, right? And it's a difficult one to answer. You have to bring together nutritional science with archaeology, all of history, which is a long time, so I'm told. And things, of course, change, as Sam Leggett from the Department of Archaeology at the University of Cambridge points out. Depending on the time period, my answer would actually change quite a lot, as what was in fashion for posh people to eat changes through time. But generally speaking, though, we know that medically, diet has a huge impact on health. A well-balanced diet is key to staying healthy, and especially so in early life when your bones and brains are developing and growing. But diet isn't the only thing that dictates your height or intelligence. These are really complex things, and diet plays a role, but a lot of this is down to your genetics and the rest of your environment that you're living in, so pollution, for instance. There isn't much evidence to suggest that Roman patricians would have been smarter, but due to social privilege, they were more likely to be better educated. But what about outside of Roman times? How healthy would a medieval munch have been, and would it have made much difference? Well, Julie Dunn from the University of Bristol has some interesting insights about the negatives of an aristocrat's diet. Allowing for shortages in times of bad weather or harvest, the medieval peasant probably had a fairly healthy diet, possibly more so than the wealthier classes. Because documentary sources tell us that higher status diets, such as those consumed by the lords of the manor, also relied on meat, together with poultry and fish, but probably cooked in more exotic recipes, using herbs and spices. Interestingly, the aristocracy were very suspicious of raw greenstuffs, regarding them as unhealthy, and fruit and fresh vegetables, such as garlic, onion and leek, were thought of as being poor men's food, or as only suitable for those doing penance. 
More wealthy diets included quite a lot of pastries and tarts, so may not have been quite as healthy. Thank you to Julie and before that Sam for serving up an answer. And next time we're seeking a solution to this question from Pavel. Take sunglasses and remove one lens. Watch a normal television film with one eye darkened by a sunglass lens and the other free. The film will appear in 3D. Can someone explain to me how does this work? Have you got any insights for Pavel? If so, come join the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. Or if you'd like to ask us a question, we're on chris at thenakedscientist.com or nakedscientist.com slash question. And that is it for this week on The Naked Scientist. Next week, it's the birds and the bees. We're talking fertility and how it might be set to change in the future. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Phil Sansom, and until next time, from all of us here at The Naked Scientists, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.